who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore here at Bethel University. And sitting in my office today with me are... Uh, Mitchell Crum. And Andy Bramson. And Sam Mulberry is, yes, yeah, at a meeting. meeting. But I think this meeting is about um, maybe building his uh, post-electoral bunker, um, <laughs> because we've had a few bombshells that have dropped since our last uh, podcast. First of all, I have to issue a mea culpa. We did a series of mini-pods on Election Day, and we <laughs> said in those mini-pods that we would be gathering together again on Election Night to record. And we did. But the audio is unusable. Uh, we were recording in basically a human-built cave, yes. uh, which is one of our student uh, student facilities here, which has maybe some of the poorest sound quality of any room I've been in in my life. And uh, the microphones just didn't pick us up at all. So yeah. uh, we're going to save that in the vaults. Uh, but uh, since then, we've had some pretty earth-shaking, uh, um, pretty earth-shaking election results. Donald Trump is the president-elect. Wow! Is this the biggest upset since uh, Truman defeats Dewey? Yeah, um, yeah. It may be in terms of the the news prog- prognostications. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we knew this was going to be a close election, but almost, almost, not quite. I'm going to give some credit where credit's due, but almost no one had picked Donald Trump to win the presidency. Right. I mean, even people who thought it'd be close, and I think you know, like when we did our predictions and the uh, predictum thing, Chris, you and I both had it pretty close, but yeah. not. Not, but we still had Clinton pulling this out, right? Yes. And, and it was just, it was really, really hard to see a path for Donald Trump. And the path that he ended up taking was one, interestingly enough, that he had himself had said he would take, right? And so it's kind of funny for a candidate who said a lot of things that were kind of objectively uh, false during the campaign. It turns out he was actually quite right about um, where he was going to win and who he was going to win. Um, and so nobody really saw the the Rust Belt path coming together for him quite like it did. I mean, a lot of people thought Ohio would go. I thought Ohio would go for him. Um, but Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, those were big surprises. Not many people had those in his column. Yep. And and what's interesting is even here in Minnesota, of course, as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, Minnesota saw uh, very close. I think we're yeah. uh, less than 2%. Um, well, close uh, to 1%. Yeah. yeah. yeah close I think it was like 1.2 or something. Yeah. It was the closest we've come to supporting a Republican since Reagan in 84. And of course, the last mm-hmm. time we've actually supported a Republican in Minnesota was Nixon in 72, the landslide against McGovern. Yeah, which also just building off of your point is, you know, I, I kind of, I, I thought, I, I mean, I personally thought Trump was wasting his time when he made a couple of last-minute visits yeah. here to Minnesota. But it turns Same out, here. you know, maybe if he'd been able to make a couple others, he might have tipped it. Yeah, you, right, exactly. I and mean, he, he basically, I mean, that's the thing. He came within 1.2 points with putting pre- pretty much no resources here. Yep. I mean, there was nothing other than, you know, obviously the other Republican campaigns going on. But his his campaign did nothing, and yet they almost won. Which is striking. This is uh, just to do some brief n- numerical reviews. Um, this is all available in the news and some pretty reliable news sites. But uh, we're sort of assuming that one, there are three states that haven't been officially called on all the right. sites yet. Uh, that includes Arizona, Michigan, and New Hampshire. We're pretty sure that two of those are going to go for Trump, mm-hmm. um, and one of those is going to go for Clinton. When the dust is settled, this will be uh, Trump with 306 electoral votes to Clinton's 232. Right. Or where basically the flip of where a lot of people are thinking Clinton might land. Many people thought she might get just over 300 electoral mm-hmm. votes. 
Um, and Trump does it instead. And as you guys mm-hmm. said, he, he did it mostly by flipping Rust Belt states. Yep. Winning Pennsylvania, uh, winning Michigan, uh, uh, Wisconsin, challenging in these areas, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. almost winning Minnesota, which yeah. uh, neither candidate paid any attention to because it was just assumed this was a save Clinton seat. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. This is where he made his gains. He also held Florida and mm-hmm. North Carolina, places mm-hmm. where she thought she could challenge. Right. Right. And he came very close to overturning Virginia, which was, again, supposed to be very solidly Clinton. Exactly. Yep. So all the week or two prior to the election, the talk within the Democratic camp was a firewall. Mm-hmm. That there was a set of mm-hmm. states that were very confidently Clinton states that even if she didn't win any of the swing states, she would ca- capturing those states would give her enough to win a close mm-hmm. electoral victory. Right. And I'll, I'll be honest, I was in that same camp. I thought yeah. that, that was exactly yeah. how this was going to play out. And yeah. he won a number of those states. Right. Why? What happened? Well, I mean, I think there's there's obviously different explanations floating around. I think the biggest, the most obvious one to me is he really did turn out the white working class um, in sort of apparently in higher numbers, and he got them to vote for him in higher numbers um, than they usually do. And so, for example, a lot of people who are the sort of less educated white voters um, have tended to be allied with labor unions. Those people have often been more Democratic voters, um, and they really voted um, for Trump in much larger numbers than they um, have voted for past Republican candidates. Um, And one of the interesting ways of thinking about this that I saw out there, and I forget who, who said this in the sort of pundit class, but they said, you know, in this election, the white working class voted like a minority group. And what they meant by that was, um, they voted much more in a block than uh, sort of the white working class has typically done, right? So they've often voted on other factors. This time they really rallied behind Trump as somebody who is champion, championing their, their cause, right, um, in a way that we've often seen certainly the African-American community, which tends to vote overwhelmingly for the Democratic Party, and also the Hispanic community, which tends to vote you know, not quite in high, as high in numbers, but pretty strongly for the Democrats. Um, Trump was able to get the white working class to think about um, voting for him um, somewhat in that way. Again, not, not quite as high of numbers, but um, but pretty strongly. Um, so that's, I mean, that's one reason. And the other thing, I mean, like, I think we talked a lot about his high negatives and how we thought that would doom him. And one of the interesting numbers I saw was that, you know, he's he was winning people who had a negative view of him, right? So, for example, yes. there were numbers in Wisconsin mm-hmm. that said 63% of people um, who they polled in the exit polls in Wisconsin said they had a negative view of Donald Trump, uh, which is close to his national average, maybe a little higher. Um, 21% of those people still voted for him. So one in five people who had a negative view of him in Wisconsin um, still voted for him as um, president, right? So that's that's quite striking, right? He was viewed negatively, but maybe not as strong of negatives as Hillary Clinton. So um, I'm going to run through a quick a couple of the quick. Uh, what we're getting into here is exit polling. Mm-hmm. And exit polling is done. I think we talked about this on Election Day itself. Exit polling is done to get a quicker read on the election, but also to give us some demographic data. Too. Right. And so I'm about to tell you here isn't, uh, you know, your, your vote is is, is uh, anonymous. So we really do, we, we're assuming that people are telling us the truth when we ask them about right. how they voted. And here's what we come up with. And why they voted. <laughs> why they voted. Yeah, exactly. So, and I'm, I'm drawing this from, a number of sites do exit polling, but I'm drawing this from uh, from the New York Times. Uh, men, uh, in general, overwhelmingly voted for Trump, and they voted for Trump more than they voted for Obama. So, um, uh, 53% of, of, of men uh, voted for Trump. Only 42% of women voted for Trump. Uh, 54% of them voted for Hillary Clinton, and she actually gained women over um, over uh, Barack numbers. Obama yeah. in 2012. Only by one point, though. Yeah, not think, a lot. 
And this was sort of the thought that was that if women turned out in very large numbers, women do vote more often than men in general. Right. But if women turned out in very large numbers, then that cascade of, of uh, superior mm-hmm. support for Hillary Clinton would carry her to victory. And they just didn't turn out nearly as much. Yeah, she, they were supposed to be sort of be her, like much like Barack Obama inspired the African-American community to come out and vote in higher numbers than usual and at a higher percentage than usual. Um, then they're even usually higher high percent for the Democratic candidate. Uh, women were supposed to do that for Hillary Clinton, and that I think just didn't happen. Um, you know, she got them in the normal percentages that Democratic candidates get. Right, and um, and that runs to some another big trend in this election, which is the overall voter turnout in 2016 was lower than 2012, mm-hmm. which itself was lower than 2008. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a little bit disingenuous because 2008 was the high watermark right. in the post-Cold right. War era for voter turnout. Yeah. Uh, 61% of, of people voted turned out to vote for Barack Obama in 2008. Oh, a little bit oh, under 55% of people turned mm-hmm. out to, of, of eligible voters turned out to vote uh, in 2016. And there's some speculation that uh, a lower voter turnout probably helped Donald Trump in a number of Rust Belt states. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, specifically, as Andy said, uh, driving up the rate of white working class voters. Right. And and the corresponding sort of the other side of this was that, um, you know, African-American voters, I think, turned out at somewhat lower rates, especially in those Rust Belt states. Compared to 2012. Um, compared to 2012 and yes. 2008, um, when they were much more enthused. And Hillary Clinton, I mean, what's interesting about that is the Clintons have traditionally in the past had a pretty good connection with the African-American community. But she got a lot of criticism in this campaign. I mean, for her husband's, you know, sort of um, policies that sent a lot of young African-American males to jail. Um, you know, so he, you know, he was he worked with the, the Republican Congress in the 90s to pass those policies. And I think some of those things just made African-American voters not that enthused. Yeah. Um, we're talking about a relative difference here yeah. because New York Times is reporting that 88 percent, 88 percent of African-American voters reported voting for Clinton. Eight right. percent sure. voted for Trump. Right. Um, but that's a decline yeah. of seven points. In 2012, right. 1% of people of, of African Americans <laughs> voted for right. Mitt Romney. Right. Uh, right. So there was some erosion of part mm-hmm. of the Clinton uh, coalition yeah. that was expected to help her get into the White House. And yeah. Af- uh, uh, um, a lack of enthusiasm, a lack of turnout, but also a lack right. of votes on behalf of the African American community is part of that part of that trend yeah and it was interesting because people thought oh you know trump's been so you know said these things about minority communities they're not going to you know they're going to vote against him in record numbers that simply didn't happen i mean his numbers um as you point out with the african-american community were actually better and that's not shocking in one sense because you know obama's not on the ballot but at the same time it is kind of shocking um because you on paper you look at romney and you look at mccain and you think these are people who would be more broadly acceptable right than donald trump and that didn't turn out to be the case. Uh, people thought Hispanics would turn out against him in record numbers. That didn't happen. His his percentage of the Hispanic quite, vote was similar to quite the opposite. Candidates. In fact, um, amongst Hispanics or Latinos, uh, because they uh, that's how New York Times lumps yeah. them both together. Right. Sixty five percent of them voted for Clinton, and that's pretty significant. But twenty nine percent voted for Trump, yeah. which means yeah. almost one in three yeah. Hispanics or Latinos uh, cast a vote for Donald Trump, who we thought would win almost no votes yeah. from Hispanics and Latinos, mm-hmm. yeah. and that that percentage increased. Compared to Mitt Romney's percentage. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> so what, what's happening here? Why, why are Latinos literally turning to Donald Trump in spite of some of the uh, rhetoric that he's used in this campaign? 
Fascinating. Uh, I mean, one explanation potentially could be, I mean, that Latino uh, voters generally tend to be more strongly uh, conservative in terms of mm-hmm. uh, their Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. So what we may be seeing is, um, and this is something that I think has been underplayed, um, actually, in the media's analysis so far, mm-hmm. is the role of religion. Um, yeah. And so the question is, you know, at, at how much of a role did, um, did the idea of having a, uh, you know, uh, at least a chance at conservative uh, justices sure. in the Supreme mm-hmm. Court and things like that mm-hmm. influence um, people even in these minority communities who mm-hmm. otherwise, uh, you know, basically may, probably felt somewhat alienated by by uh, by Trump's campaign. And here's the thing, and, and yeah. we're committing the same sin that I'm going to accuse others of committing right now, which is that all of these demographic data, we look at them as a single variable. We look at race, mm-hmm. or then we look at gender, right. or then we look at something I'm about to do at age. But all these things interrelate with each other. Right. The Latino right, population right. in the United States is younger on average than the white population. And the intersection of race and class and mm-hmm. by class I mean economy, mm-hmm. economic right. status, education, other sorts of things produce um, interactive effects yep. too. Yep. So yep. Uh, Hispanics may be voting more on their pocketbooks and how, uh, and their their socioeconomic status than they are on their ethnicity right. in yeah. some cases. Yeah. And yeah. To, to the point Mitch just made too, I mean I think um, – the other thing we have to, we'll have to think about in terms of assessing the Hillary Clinton campaign and how she how she blew this, right? I mean, she was widely seen as the person who should should have won. Um, and normally, again, running against a candidate with the negatives of Trump, you'd think she should pull it out. Um, and so there's going to be a lot of analysis and a lot of criticism, I think, of her. And one of the criticisms that probably needs to be discussed, right, is her decision to essentially not appeal to moderate voters, to not really go after the center. I mean, she sort of said, I'm the only acceptable candidate, so you have to vote for me. But she went pretty hard and neither, left. Neither, neither candidate did this. I mean, right. Both of them basically said the other person is unacceptable. Exactly. Um, and they relied on that. And so she went hard left. I mean, I remember when we watched that third debate together, Mitchell and I just kind of looked yeah. at each other when she answered the abortion question. It's like, wow, she's not even trying to moderate her tone. No. She's not even trying to sound like she's going to appeal to people in the center. And, you know, to, to Mitchell's point, I think this, this may be why um, you know, Trump gets the Hispanic votes he gets. If, if you're really concerned about sort of the the morally conservative issues, I mean, it, it was hard to stomach a vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, and I think she probably hurt herself there by not at least giving them space to possibly choose her. So let me um, let me introduce yet another variable here because I'm going to walk through all of these with you guys, if that's okay. All right. Um, the big uh, and, and, I, and I'm I'm, t- I'm tipping my head into some narratives that are showing up in the um, mm-hmm. in a lot of journalistic accounts because they're looking at these exit polls too, and I want to get your thoughts on how fair this is. But one of the biggest gains that Hillary Clinton made um, in this election against previous Democrats, mm-hmm. uh, specifically the last two Obama elections, is among is a- along educational lines. Yep. Hillary, uh, if you have a college degree. You are more likely to vote for Hillary Clinton than you ever have for a Democrat in the past in modern memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, the divide was pretty stark. Yep. 49% of college graduates voted for Hillary Clinton. Only 45% of college graduates uh, voted for Donald Trump. And if you have more than a college degree, it goes up even more dramatically. Right. Less than a college degree. People who have high school educations or some level of college education. Donald Trump won those two groups handily. Um, mm-hmm. 51% and 52%. So and and appeared to gain in that area, too. So are we seeing as is being written up and I've seen a number of, of uh, you know, post hoc analyses. Are we seeing a divide in America along educational lines between uh, the, the, the college degree holders and the college degree uh, lack uh, um, uh, less than college degree? Are these are, is, is this a new divide in the class warfare of, of America? Um, I mean, I think I think part of this gets back to sort of the interactive effects that you were talking mm-hmm. about before. Okay. So one of the things 
to focus on is you need to think about, you know, where where are a lot of colleges and where are people more likely to go to college? And that has a lot sure. to do with geography. I mean, if you are going to college or if you are somebody who's more likely to go to college, you're going to be somebody who's closer to an urban environment, somebody right. who, um, right. at least for a while, moves to an urban um, center and things like mm-hmm. that. And so that's going to have relation to that. That's also going to mean if you are going to have more economic opportunities. Mm-hmm. I mean, somebody who mm-hmm. moves to a city um, is going to have more economic opportunities than somebody who uh, remains in a rural area. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot of interaction there. I, yeah. I, 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 I want to be cautious in saying that this is um, simply simply an education uh, thing because I think some of the other factors are playing um, a pretty significant role there as well. But True. I do think I do think that part of this, what this points to, though, um, is the fact that, you know, when you when you look at the places and this gets back to geography, I mean, if you look at the places that have mm-hmm. been um, hit the hardest by globalization and these um, issues that Donald Trump raised, um, it is rural areas. Mm-hmm. And I think that mm-hmm. basically does interact then with um, with 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 college education for the reasons that we just that uh, that Chris just said, or that, yeah, that I just said. Yeah, I think that that urban-rural divide is actually much more significant, I think, overall, when you think about sort of what's going on. I mean, if you look at the the, sort of the map of the country, that's what you're going to see, right, is that Trump, it looks very red, right? And and then the blue spots are the places where the population is uh, concentrated, right? I'll give you an even more stark version of that because this was actually a question that's on the New York Times as well. Um, uh, Residents, if you lived in a city of over 50,000 people, as all three of us do, Right. Uh, you, uh, 59% of those people went for Hillary Clinton. Only 35% right. of them went for Donald Trump. Yep. If you live in a suburb, if, uh, Donald Trump makes substantial gains. 50% of suburbia, suburbanites voted for Trump, only 45% for Clinton. Yep. And if you live in a small city, under 50,000, or mm-hmm. a rural area, like where I grew up, 62% voted for Donald Trump. Yep. Only, yep. 32, only 34% yep. for Hillary Clinton. Yep. Yeah. So um, one of the best predictors of, of who you're going to vote for um, other than asking who your parents voted for, that's the best predictor. Right. <laughs> uh, but but um, is uh, asking where you live. Mm-hmm. Um, is the, uh, there's a couple different explanations for this. One of them is this sort of intersection of di- a couple different factors, mm-hmm. socioeconomics, education that Mitch is talking about. Um, I think another explanation is um, is uh, uh, that we're seeing in the narratives. And I want to get your evaluations of this. Is is, is um, contact mm-hmm. hypothesis? Are people more likely to vote for Hillary Clinton? When they come into contact with more different kinds of people who have different kinds of views, different uh, religions, different ethnicities, uh, does that moderate one's views and push one towards a more progressive candidate? Or is, there, or, or is this simply just a construction of, social, of, other, of the intersection of other factors? Because I'm seeing this in, the, I'm mm-hmm. seeing this in other uh, people's yeah. analyses. I, I think – so this is where – I, I would I would want to say on the one hand it's it's very complicated. <laughs> I want I want right. I want to sort of hesitate there to say that like yeah. you know because somebody has come into contact with others that makes them um, that sort of moderates their views. I think it might make them hate them more. <laughs> well, it's, this 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 is actually true, and I've actually I've actually have seen a couple of stories that do make that argument for the reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That people who have had you know negative contacts with people who aren't like them um, actually become much more strident. Um, yeah. In terms of in terms of uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, the one area where we know this is true is immigration. Uh, the people who are most concerned about illegal immigration in the United States tend to be furthest away from significant populations mm-hmm. of Latinos and Hispanics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, but I, I do think so. On the one hand, um, part of part part of what I think uh, happens, especially in, in rural communities, is as we've seen. Um, 
as as we uh, because they uh, because they are separated from um, a lot of minority communities, mm-hmm. I think there's I think there's a lack of um, realization for for how for how far away we still are from mm-hmm. some level of um, equality in terms right. in terms of in terms of racial equality, and I do think that may play a role. Mm-hmm. Um, people people who are far away from it basically they don't they don't they don't they don't have any exposure to this, and I think that gets to to your point. Um, but whether that means that that actually that you know, but whether that means once they actually come into contact with people, that makes them sort of have progressive views, I would want to mm. hesitate on that um, because mm. I'm not sure that having contact with people automatically changes sort of your ideology and necessarily your outlook on the world. Okay. Yeah. The, the other thing, I mean, it's worth noting here, right, is that this is not a new divide, right? I and mean, this is this is no. not about Trump and Clinton. This is a divide that we've had for a long time. So um, when you look back at the maps of, you know, with Bush or McCain or Romney, right, I mean, you're going to see that same sort of support for them in the uh, rural areas versus the support for Obama, Kerry, Gore in the, the urban areas, right? So that's a long-term divide. Uh, and, of course, the other thing that we're, we haven't talked about yet that is kind of going to overlap over all this is the party ID, right? I mean, like – Sure. Um, and – to me, the, the the simplest explanation of sort of what happened in this election is not about these different groups, although that's part of it, I think, especially the working class whites. But it's just party members came home for the most part, and the Republicans yes. seemed a little yeah, bit more um, revved up than the Democratic Party. Um, the Democrats do have a larger base overall when you look at party registration, uh, but it doesn't seem like they turned out as strongly. No. Um, and so, um, you know, I think this was an advantage for the Republicans um, because most, bo- in, in the end, both well, both parties up, got most of their members voting for their candidate. It ended up being an advantage for the Republicans. Initially, yeah. it was looking to be right. um, a, a weakness because the thought was that there were so many Republicans who were dissatisfied with yeah, Donald Trump exactly. that they simply wouldn't vote for Republican. Maybe they'd vote for Gary Johnson, or maybe they'd vote for Evan McMullen, or maybe they would just stay home. Right, and that but, happens some. I mean, like I think I think McMullen, for example, was the difference in um, Trump's. Support like the difference between Trump winning or losing in Minnesota and Virginia. Actually, I think he might have gotten those two states if he had consolidated those votes. So that hurt him a little at the edges, but obviously, you know, but not, not, enough, to but cost not it. enough. And in the exit polling, the the two parties are roughly comparable. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of Democrats voted for a Democrat. Ninety yep. percent of Republicans voted for a Republican. Yep. And, and Democrats early in this election cycle were thinking that maybe only eighty percent of Republicans would vote for Donald yeah. Trump. Yeah. And so the fact that he, that, that, like you said, the Republicans came home. They did. Uh, really helped him win this election. Right. And we and we sort of saw that coming. I mean, that that was, I think, less of a surprise. I, I could see the last couple of weeks before the election that they were consolidating their vote. The thought was, though, the Democrats still have the larger base, and she's got this, you know, the blue wall, right, where that has voted for Obama. And so the thought was, I mean, like, the base, the Republicans turned out pretty well in 08 and 12, and it just wasn't enough, right? They got overwhelmed. And so the thought was that would happen again. Again, that turned out to be incorrect. Um, although we should note, I mean, of course, that Hillary Clinton it does look like is going to win the popular vote, right? But by a very narrow yes. margin, and this mainly has to do with her running up the, the the sort of the score in places like California and New York, and coming yes. a little closer in places like Texas than Obama did. Right. Um, so she, you know, she she did win a, a lot of popular votes, but she didn't win them in the right place. Second time a Democrat's done that in 16 years. Al Gore did that in 2000 yeah. as well. Yep. Exactly. Well, gentlemen, uh, we could talk about. Uh, um, exit polling all day, and well, I intend to. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, I, but one piece of exit polling that I think we, where we're at here at Bethel University, are uniquely equipped to talk about right. is the evangelical vote. Eighty-one percent sure. of evangel- self-identified evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Uh, only um, uh, only sixteen percent voted for Hillary Clinton. That's one of the starkest differences in American politics, mm-hmm. and it's the star- it's, it's one of the starkest differences amongst any religious groups, mm-hmm. um, amongst yes. amongst the candidates. And I should also say too that 
um, the more more devout of an evangelical you are. Now you might be asking me, how do I determine how devout you are? Well, the more <laughs> often you attend religious <laughs> services, right. the more often you are to vote for Donald Trump as well. Holding aside the evangelical, just any person who's religious, if they attend, if they if they attend um, religious services, never they vote for Hillary Clinton sixty two percent of the time. If they go a couple times a year, forty eight percent. A couple times a month, forty six percent. Every week, forty percent. Mm-hmm. So her de- her her support amongst religious people in general mm-hmm. declines as people become more devout, and this is especially true of evangelicals. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple questions for you guys. You want the hard one first or the easy one first? <laughs> Guess the hard one. Hard one first. What is an evangelical? What is an evangelical? That that is kind of a hard question to <laughs> answer in simple terms. And luckily, Mitch is an expert on that. So. <laughs> uh, I don't, that was an excellent punt. There we go. Um, uh, general, generally speaking, an, ev- uh, an, an, an evangelical. I mean, there's basically the problem with with this term is is there are there's there's both sort of a theological side to it, and then there's also sort of a social mm-hmm. um, demographic right. side great. to it. Yes, that's true. And so I think, and so I think this is this is what makes the term so difficult to grapple with. So on the one hand, you have evangelical, where if you ask someone, "Are you an evangelical?" Um, then pe- a lot of people will say yes, and you'll mm-hmm. get people who, mm-hmm. um, you know, basically have some vague idea that they believe in Jesus. They might, you know, sometimes this will be classified as people asking, you know, do you believe in Jesus as a personal savior, mm-hmm. or do you believe mm-hmm. you're right. born again? And right. these are have you, of, have you prayed a prayer at some point where you committed your life to Jesus Christ? Right, yeah. and so and so and so people will sort of have this. Um, you know, pollsters and people who are doing these kinds of measures will have sort of these shorthands for trying to determine right. who is a quote-unquote evangelical um, that looks something like that. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, when we talk about evangelicals, we might be thinking um, in those terms. Mm-hmm. And that it, it is somewhat helpful. It gives you um, a certain snapshot of, uh, you know, certain kinds of people. But then on the other hand, you have evangelical in the terms, uh, and, and well, and just just to backtrack here for a second, I think what when we when we look at these exit polling numbers, a lot of times that is basically what we're getting, right? We're yes. getting people who are either self-identifying as evangelical or self-identifying mm-hmm. as somebody who is born again, or you know, etc. Right. These kinds of markers that uh, that pollsters use. Right. And I think this is where things get fuzzy, though. Is then once we say, okay, we want to dig a little bit deeper than that, right? Mm-hmm. Than somebody who just self-identifies, and so this is where it gets a little bit fuzzier. It's not entirely clear how much the theology translates down into all of these self-identified people. Um, And so so then when we think about the theology, right, we're usually thinking about people who are committed to um, uh, fairly, uh, I'm going to use the blanket term, and this is bad because it also has political connotations, but, you know, (laughs) sort of conservative views of theology, right? right? And so what I mean by that is people who would hold to uh, sort of the classic creeds. So some obvious things would be like people would say things like Jesus Christ uh, was, was, um, uh, died died for the sins of his people. Right. Uh, you know, he was born of a virgin. He was, right. uh, you know, you can just sort of go through the creed, yeah. you know. And, and, uh, you know. Yeah. And, and the Bible is both literally true and inerrant. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the views mm-hmm. of biblical inerrancy mm-hmm. are, are, are central to that. Um, and, so, and so you can look through and you can sort of say, okay, those are sort of the theological commitments. Now, uh, whether all those 81% of people um, who, who self-identified as evangelical would hold to all of those Right. Uh, is an open question. In fact, Christianity Today has done a number. Well, uh, yeah. it's not them necessarily, but has, has parsed a number of different studies, like Pew studies and things like that, that uh, have basically shown that people who self-identify as evangelical are essentially, um, you know, quite a few of them are heretics on at least one of these, <laughs> um, at least one of these Oops. core theological 
uh, commitments. And you don't mean that pejoratively. You literally mean heresy. I, I literally mean heresy, right? They either deny the virgin birth, or you know, they they would say something like, you know, G, you know, we're not sure if Jesus was a lit- you know, was an actual per, you know, was an actual um, historical person, person, or was fully God, or was fully or, God. You know, yeah, I mean, so you know, so you have these yeah, sort of questions yeah. about these, you know, core creedal, right. you know, basic basic theological um, right. commitments that not everyone right. is fully willing to affirm, who nonetheless self-identify as evangelical. So that's where I think things get get really tricky and in terms of pulling all of this apart. Well, the That's other thing also, I, I would just toss in there, too, is that, I mean, as, as Mitch pointed out, this has a theological side and a social side, right? And the, the interesting thing in our, our society is that uh, o- over time, I mean, the evangelical uh, as a term has become identified with the Republican Party, right? And it's become yeah. sort of if you're an evangelical Christian, you're the kind of Christian who votes for the Republican Party. And this is a, sort of a heritage of the, the moral majority dating yeah. back to yeah. you know, Jerry Falwell. Fallwell around 1980, right? And so I think that then shapes how people self-identify, right? And if you ask, are you evangelical, and you are inclined to vote for the Democratic Party, you might think of yourself as a Christian, but not want to use the term evangelical, right? And uh, we'll give a shout out here to one of our uh, big fans, right, Chris Garretts, who's wrestled with this a lot. We're, we're blog, just big fans of Chris where I think we're, we're big fans of Chris Garretts. And so Chris is one of our colleagues here, um, does the Pietist Schoolman blog. Um, but Chris has wrestled on his blog a lot with this issue of, you know, what do we do with this term evangelical now that it's become such a political term? It's become so closely identified with a particular sort of political position. And John it, it doesn't the same thing with this. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, right? I mean, for mm-hmm. when you think about the, the sort of theological points that Mitch was mentioning, I mean, those don't necessarily mean, therefore, you have to vote for this party um, because right. it's it's nuanced. I mean, you can focus on, you know, sort of issues like the, you know, the life beginning at conception, and there's a good argument for that from Scripture, and that might lead you toward the Republican side. But you could also argue that, you know, the, the what the Scripture says about immigrants might push you more toward the Democratic side, right? I mean, so you could certainly make the case that you could be a faithful evangelical and vote either way. But the reality socially is it has become identified with one party. So then that makes me wonder, I mean, does that just mean that the people who will use the term evangelical are the people who are um, going to vote a certain way, right? And so what that, that means is that we might not be talking about a theological distinction so much as a now a political distinction. The term has gotten really, really messy in the last few years. I'll throw one yeah, more sure. layer on this onion, which is that in addition to theology and in addition to social policy, uh, institutionalism matters. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Evangelical, the evangelical denominations are the least institutionalized of any in the United States. Yep. Um, if you're a Catholic, there is a whole um, international institutional system presiding over your um, the practice of your faith and your creed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a pretty substantial right. uh, 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 institutionalization for Methodists and for Lutherans and for Episcopalians and, Pre- and Presbyterians. But for evangelicals, a lot of this is very decentralized. Often the governance yep. is entirely based in the local de- in a local church uh, with very little oversight from any kind mm-hmm. of broader body. So as a consequence, the, the local community can have, a, have an outsized effect on education um, right. and, and, norm, and norming uh, of, of certain kinds of attitudes about politics mm-hmm. or other sorts of things as well. So I think as a consequence of that, uh, evangelicals, and I'm saying this as someone who has, is at an evangelical institution and also has grown up in the evangelical faith and can mm-hmm. also consider myself an evangelical right. in the best sense of that term. Right. Um, we're more susceptible to political manipulation mm-hmm. than I think some more institutionalized bodies yep. who have sort of a bulwark against mm-hmm. outside influences. I agree with that. And as a, also a person who identifies as an evangelical and teaches at this institution, I mean, I think – um, I'm one of these people who has become more reluctant to just sort of uncritically use that term. And it's not so much that my views have shifted, right, but because the term is so loaded, right? And so that's one of the reasons I'm sort of very, I think, aware of this this issue, right? I mean, I know that even my own self-description when I try to use labels, right, and see people say, what do you believe, right? Mm-hmm. 
I'm not as quick to jump to the term evangelical just because it does feel like it's so loaded. And again, that's that's not a reflection of a theological shift so much with me as it is a shift in how I understand that view. That term is being used, right? Um, and what what people are when they when they hear that term, what they're sort of associating with it. Um, and so I've you know I've migrated to other things like you know, I'm a follower of Christ, right? Um, instead of saying just sort of evangelical because it yeah. that feels so much more loaded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think and I think also I mean with with that said, I mean part of what makes this even fuzzier too, even on the theology side, mm-hmm. is even though you know we would have you know we you know we're working at an evangelical institution and right. things like that, there are people in, amongst the denominations um, you know that uh, that Chris just mentioned who would also self-identify as evangelical. So mm-hmm. for example, you could mm-hmm. have you know evangelical Presbyterians and Lutherans and sure, sure. Know, think and Methodists and all these sorts of things, and so. Uh, it really becomes difficult to even nail down, uh, you know, even though we can sort yeah. of have this idea of, of, oh, well, you know, it means you have sort of these, cla- you know, these sort, sort of these basic theological commitments, but mm-hmm. even those are contested. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not like mm-hmm. um, everyone is necessarily completely on board um, with what with what that with what that term means, right. uh, even theologically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We, gents, we got an email from a listener named Eric Johnson. He's a Bethel grad, uh, graduate from here before any of our times here. Okay. But hi, Eric. Um, and he <laughs> asked us, uh, he, he's forwarded us an article from Christianity Today about the evangelical vote. And he asked this question. If Hillary, could Hillary Clinton have done enough uh, courting of evangelicals that she could have swung the election? Should she have spent more of her time courting particularly white evangelical voters? Is that Was that within the realm of possibility? Could she have gotten a larger share of the evangelical vote? I mean, my instinct is no. Yeah. Um, and, and particularly because, uh, par- partially because, of course, I mean, again, we're getting back to sort of the interactive effects here. But, yeah. you know, a lot of evangelicals are going to be more rural. They're going to be. Sure. Um, you know, uh, and, and actually, one of the things that's interesting as well and, uh, is the fact that, you know, younger people are moving away from identifying as, as, as evangelical in some ways. Yeah. Um, They're following Andy's lead. He's so he's so hip. Exactly. Yeah. He's, <laughs> yeah. And that is the first time in my life I've been described as so. Hip. <laughs> so, you know, so <laughs> you were post evangelical before it was cool. Right. So 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 at any rate, yeah, I'm not sure, uh, you know, given especially given the other demographics and things like that, that Hillary Clinton could have um, won over uh, voters, although, you know, especially because and I'll just say this, you know, Hillary Clinton might have actually had a chance to win over quite a few major evangelical leaders. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's been interesting in this election is quite a few very well known um, evangelicals came out um, in strong opposition to to uh, to Donald Trump. Right. And uh, despite that. Uh, you still mm-hmm. saw basically the rank and file basically ignoring, yeah. um, you know, the advice and the uh, guidance of, yeah. of, of, um, of the leadership and basically saying, you know, we're, we're going to vote for Donald Trump anyway. And yeah. I think in some ways that points to what Chris uh, already noted here is the lack of institutionalization. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people feel like, you know, they don't they don't need to listen to these, uh, you know, to to, right. uh, to 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 their leaders and the people who. Um, yeah, who, who, are, who are more involved in these things. Yeah, I think and the other thing I would add there, too, is not a lot of the, the leaders that are most respected among sort of conservative um, evangelicals, in other words, the people who, who do tend to vote more Republican, right? Not a lot of those people came out against Trump. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of, when you looked at sort of the evangelicalists, a lot of them were people who are already very identified with the Democratic Party. Um, I'm trying to think of, any, I mean, were there any prominent, the sort of the usual suspects um, who are on the sort of the conservative side, right? And by this, I mean politically conservative side. Were there any of those people who really came out against Trump strongly? I mean, because a lot of them came out in support of him. Like you're getting the James Dobsons, you're getting right. some Franklin Graham. Uh, a lot Max, of them. Max Lucado famously yeah, he against can't, Trump. That's true. Uh, Rick Warren. 
Uh, yeah, but even Rick Warren's seen as at best moderate, right? I mean, he's not seen right. as somebody who's strongly identified with the the conservative, the, the sort of politically conservative side. Yeah, I would I would say anybody who didn't like Donald Trump, who was who was profoundly a conservative evangelical, probably just kept their mouth shut. Right, yeah. exactly. They either kept their mouth shut, or none of them actually came out and said, "Well, even though I have some reservations, I'm, you know, I'm going to vote for him." Right. Right. Um, and so. Which is sort of, you know, even when you say, I'm not endorsing, but I'm going to vote for him, right? That's sort of an implicit, like, you're okay to do this. Right. And and one of the things, uh, I guess, I guess one of the things that I'm thinking about is, uh, Jake Meter over at uh, Mere Orthodoxy, Mm -hmm. uh, had a, had a rundown basically of who supported, who who came out in support of Trump and who didn't. And one of the things that he notes is that there actually is a generational divide even there. So if you look at evangelical leaders Mm -hmm. who are Mm -hmm. over 50, they were much more likely to come out in favor of Trump. Evangelical leaders who are under 50 were much, much less likely to uh, endorse or or even um, say that you should vote for um, or even consider voting for Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you and you get people like Russell Moore, obviously, is somebody right. who who was you know expressed a lot of concern. He didn't now he didn't come out and endorse Hillary Clinton, right? That's right. not what he was doing. Um, I don't think he voted for her, but at the same time, he um, certainly came out and expressed a lot of concern about Trump and about the sort of the rush to um, ally sort of evangelicalism with um, Donald Trump. And he pointed out that there was a lot of there were a lot of problems with doing that. Um, despite that, obviously, as we pointed out, um, you know Trump. Carried the evangelical vote overwhelmingly, which seems to have four to, to one. do, yeah, four to one, right? Which seems to have a lot to do with their deep um, concern about Hillary Clinton, and that goes back to the '90s. That goes back to the administration of her husband, um, where they, you know, ever since then they've kind of viewed her as public enemy number one. Um, so there was a, there was a deep antipathy toward her, and then um, you know I think they're also they just were concerned about sort of more policies that looked a lot like the last eight years, and so. You know, you get that. And then, of course, obviously, over the time, evangelicals have, by and large, become very identified with the Republican Party. Right. So they voted their their party ID um, in that sense as well. So, I, so back to your question, I don't think, like, she had much chance to appeal. Or to Eric's question, I don't think she really could have shifted that in any kind of big numbers. Without fundamentally undermining who she was. Yeah, yeah I, was, I mean, if she had been a, made a more moderate appeal, then people toward the center might have been a little bit more inclined to vote for her. I mean, maybe maybe some of the people who voted for a third party would have you know, voted for her. Um, but yeah, I just, I find it hard to believe that she could have shifted enough without, as you say, Chris, um, sort of not being who she is. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so one of the things, I mean, just as an example of this, um, I was, uh, I just wanted to, conf- I, I was, I was just looking and, uh, you know, John Piper is, is an example mm-hmm. of this, right. Who's a yeah. very well known right. evangelical leader, um, who happens, you know, is also over 50. <laughs> um, Quite but he a, actually, and, and white and, and, and so white and all that. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that's interesting about him is he did come out and he created quite a few waves in saying mm-hmm. that, you know, he, he was opposed to Donald Trump and, um, and he famous, he actually caused quite a kerfuffle when he mm-hmm. sent out a tweet that said, um, you know, basically Donald Trump should step down and mm-hmm. should not and should discontinue his run. Yeah, um, he wanted Mike Pence to run in his place, correct? I believe so. Yeah. 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 Uh, but but nonetheless, right? He at the same time said that he felt Hillary Clinton should also step down. Right. Um, and so in many ways, and that Tim Kaine ran her place. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure that he went that. I'm not sure that he said that. Maybe that's what he meant. But right, um, right, right. but it, but at any rate, I think this kind of gets to the point of saying, you know, what what uh, would evangelicals want? You know, could 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 Clinton have, have courted evangelicals? And I think. Piper is sort of a microcosm there to mm-hmm. kind of say um, even even people who really um, dislike Trump um, yeah. probably were not uh, persuadable to um, to vote uh, you know to to basically come on board with Clinton. Yeah, and I, and I, I don't know like would another candidate have been able to do that a little bit more? I mean, to get back to Eric's question, right? Um, there was such a deep dislike of Hillary Clinton um, and such a deep distrust of her that I don't 
think there was much of a path open to her. I mean, could a could a Joe Biden pull that off? Uh, I'm I'm skeptical. I just think that the party ID is really what's going on here. Like the people yeah. become deeply partisan, and it's really really hard to get people who are already sort of deeply committed to one party to shift um, right. to the other. Right. right. The people in the center are more in play, but that's not really where most of the evangelicals are sitting. And to be clear, and, and neither of you are or neither of you are disagreeing with this point, but it's worth mentioning when evangelicals make this decision. Um, we oftentimes are looking at applying the policies of the mm-hmm. candidate to our to our faith mm-hmm. rather than the candidate's faith to our faith. There are some right. there are some politicians mm-hmm. who have gotten credit for being quote unquote born again Christians. Right. I think like George, George w. Bush, Bush got a, got credit for being that, but that's per- fairly rare. Mm-hmm. Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton, by any reasonable measure, is the more devout candidate in this election. Sure, uh, she's more tied yeah. to her Methodist faith than Donald Trump is to any particular right. faith. Even like her her concession speech, right? I mean, yeah. um, Donald Trump was the first candidate um, in over thirty years, I think, to not end his his sort of post election speech with "God bless America." He didn't mention God at all right. in the speech. Um, Hillary Clinton, on the other hand, quoted scripture um, and did end traditionally, right? I mean, so like so it's. So that was, you know, that was interesting, right? I mean, because sure. I think that, yeah. that reinforces the point you just made, Chris, that this is, I mean, even though, you know, obviously evangelicals have a lot of concerns about Hillary Clinton, her her faith is actually more part of who she more is than, than, it's more evident um, than Trump's, which seems to be very cursory at best. Yeah. yeah. Hey, welcome back. Uh, if you wondered why this sounds a little bit disjunctive, it's because we had a technical issue and we had to stop recording and recharge some batteries, but we're back now. So when we left off, we were talking about uh, Hillary Clinton's relative uh, ineffectiveness according to the evangelical vote. And specifically, I think I was saying that even though she's a relatively devout person personally and more connected with her Methodist faith than Donald Trump is with with any particular faith, Mm -hmm. uh, she was unable to capture even one in four or one in five, sorry, uh, uh, self-identified evangelical voters. Right. um, Is this... Do we see this trend continuing? Um, obviously, she's not going to run again. Could we imagine the Democrats putting up a legitimate mm-hmm. Democratic candidate who would challenge Republican dominance over mm-hmm. evangelical voters? I think I mean one of the things this is going to come down to is maybe the we've talked about this before, but the possible realignment that might be taking place, mm-hmm. right? I mean, so mm-hmm. you know, Obama certainly um, was able to pull a larger group of people out to vote for the Democratic candidate in '08 and '12. Um, than the Democrats had been successful at doing in a long, long time, right? And so uh, that might indicate some shift. And one of the interesting interpretations of Trump's victory is that what Trump has done is he's run not as a conservative because he really, nope. I mean, he's given lip service to some conservative positions, but he's not. Mm-hmm. He's clearly not a true conservative. That's not really what he's based his campaign right. on. He's run more as a, a sort of hardcore nationalist, right? Yeah. Um, and to some extent, you know, a nationalist who particularly advocates for a particular group of people, right? In this case, the sort of white working class. And so um, if... If that trend continues and if um, that becomes so dominant that he starts articulating things that are inconsistent with Christian values, and you do see a lot of younger evangelicals, right, who are just, you know, uncomfortable with Trump um, in particular, then ultimately there could be a re, sort of reorienting of the parties where yep. one of the parties, um, in this case obviously the Democratic Party is the obvious option, might reorient where it stands to try to appeal to those voters. And so um, how they would do that in terms of sort of with their current sort of members of their coalition is, I think, really hard to see right now. Mm. Uh, but I certainly could imagine a shift um, because I, I think the groups that are all sort of united under Trump Republicanism right now, um, it's an uneasy alliance. And sure. it could easily be some big tensions real soon yeah. uh, between the sort of competing demands of the people that elected Trump. So we'll see how that plays out. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think in some ways, maybe you even uh, saw the potential for that, uh, even in this election, where Hillary Clinton was choosing a very moderate vice presidential mm-hmm. candidate. And, you know, all it would take was just would just yeah. be, you know, Tim Kaine running in 2020, basically saying, you know, I'm going to be I'm, I'm appealing to the moderates mm-hmm. and, and even moderating on on, uh, on those kinds of issues. Right. Except, yeah. And then that was one of the weird things about choosing Tim Kaine and then the way the way they then ran the, the campaign, right? I mean, like, Tim Kaine was the kind of candidate you choose if you want to run to the center, if you want to appeal to the moderate voters, and it felt like they had a real opportunity to do that. I mean, this is a guy who spent time, you know, doing Catholic mission work overseas. He's somebody sure. who was personally pro-life. Um, and fluent yet, in Spanish. Or fluent in Spanish, right? I and mean, he felt like the kind of guy who could maybe reach out to right. um, the more sort of, you know, the more devout uh, members of the sort of voting population. But then they ran hard left, which made, you know, again, they a think lot they could of Christians have it both really uncomfortable. I don't know what they thought. I mean, that's that's one of the things that will be interesting in some of these post-election analyses and as these people write their you know, accounts of the campaign. I mean, <laughs> I'll be kind of curious to see what they were thinking there because, again, the, the choice of Tim Kaine just seems then uh, inconsistent with how she ran. I mean, if the way she ran, she should have honestly probably put Elizabeth Warren on um, as vice president. She would have fired up the left base much more, and um, that would have been more consistent with Hillary's message. Um, Tim Kaine just felt sort of oddly disjunctive mm-hmm. for the, the yeah. kind of campaign yeah. she ran after choosing him. Was he a compromised candidate? Maybe. I mean, he was certainly the, he felt like the safe candidate, the candidate yeah. who won't blow up for you. Yeah, but she didn't. I mean, like, this isn't on Tim Kaine, right? But but he just he, again, he just feels no. Like neither, I, mean, I think we can say tension. safely that neither vice presidential vice presidential candidate hurt the presidential race. Yeah, and Pence helped. I mean, I think I Pence, do think I think Pence helped. helped because yeah. he. Yeah. I had a lot of Christian conservative friends who were justifying their vote for Trump uh, largely through Pence, right? They're yeah. Saying, oh, well, Pence is really good. Pence is a devout Christian. Right. Pence is really consistent on these morally conservative issues. That shows that Trump has good character because he chose Pence, right? And there's that kind of narrative going on. Yep. Um, here's I want to propose that if you're looking for the Democrats to attempt to make inroads within evangelical voters, here's where you should look for it. We've already said by looking at our exit poll data that Clinton did better amongst urban uh, or um, city-dwelling Americans. Right. She did better amongst um, – she did, she did well amongst the very poorest part of our country in terms of income and also mm-hmm. the very wealthiest part. Trump right. actually did, the, right. did better in the middle class, the, the working in the middle class. And she did better in racially diverse areas. So think about evangelical churches that live in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Look for suburban or urban evangelical churches where there is at least some level of ethnic diversity inside the congregation. Right. And look for um, those who tend to be li- more liberal anyway. Mm-hmm. We're not talking about predominantly African-American churches here, which already vote for Clinton right. or vote for Democrats in large numbers. But white majority with, eth- with ethnic minority is present. Um, those are the kind of churches we should maybe see drifting towards Democrats if Democrats make inroads in the evangelical community. Right. Those would be the most likely to, to make right. that move. Yeah. Yep. In fact, we found out that um, whites who attend church frequently with only other whites – were even more overwhelmingly likely to vote for uh, Trump than evangelicals in general, right. on the order of mm-hmm. six or seven to one. Yeah. Uh, but whites who went to church with people of at least a few people of another race, that number dropped precipitously. Interesting. That makes sense. Though. Well, gentlemen, I have to point out that uh, Professor Bramson is drinking his coffee out of a Harry Truman Presidential Library <laughs> mug. But it's red. Well, it is red. So I'm having it both ways. Okay, so it's a red mug from uh, from a from a blue president. And yesterday I was drinking um, my coffee out of a blue Herbert Hoover mug. So 
Um, so I am does, the Herbert, so does the Herbert Hoover mug have a leak in the bottom of it? Is there like a? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a very solid mug. Is much, it very? Is it really much solid? more solid than the than, than the Hoover administration was itself? <laughs> well, here's what I wanted to ask you. So I'm I'm literally looking at Harry Truman's signature on the on the side of the mug facing me, and is this the biggest presidential upset since uh, Truman defeated Dewey? Um. Yeah. I I kind of I'm gonna go yes. Um, and in some ways, maybe this is even bigger because, of course, the, the obvious difference is the polling was much less reliable in 48, mm-hmm. and we did much less of it. So they had kind of stopped polling the race in the last few weeks because, like, well, Dewey's going to win. And we don't really need to keep t- touching base with the American voters, which turned out to be really inaccurate. A bad idea. Um, but, you know, so that makes this one, in that sense, more shocking. Um, I guess, on the other hand, it, you know, there certainly was space. If you were looking for it, there was certainly space for a Trump win to happen. So even though it's surprising, um, it's not utterly shocking, right? I mean, and Nate Silver made right. this point uh, on his blog that the night of the election. He said, on the one hand, I mean, like, I am very shocked by this result. On the other hand, he said, I predicted that there was very much space for this to happen. I mean, he thought there yeah. was about a, you know, you know, he thought 71% chance of Hillary Clinton winning, which, you know, left a very healthy opportunity for Donald Trump. So Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think this is a something we can easily misread and is getting misread um, in a lot of media reports about the fallout of this election. Mm-hmm. Data journalists did predict Clinton to win, right. but good data journalists predicted Clinton to win probabilistically. Right. And yeah. someone like Silver left the door open with about a 29% chance of a Trump mm-hmm. win. And the kinds of things that would have had to have happened for a Trump win to happen, he stated clearly, mm-hmm. and Trump met those criteria. Yeah. We as humans don't do this very well. If we hear something is a 71% chance of happening, we tend to think it's going to happen all the time. Right. But right. it doesn't. It happens seven times out of ten. Three times out of ten, it doesn't happen. Right. Um, we're really good at thinking about things in absolute certainties, absolute mm-hmm. improbabilities, mm-hmm. and 50-50 coin flips. Mm-hmm. Something like right. 71% chance doesn't fall well into that. No. And so uh, we tend to see a 71% chance of something not coming true as a failure. It really isn't. Right. Um, the, the polling was off. Yes. But not by as much as we're be, as it's being portrayed to be. Yeah. Maybe a point or two off. I mean, it was off by more in some states. Nationally, True. it was very close. A place I mean, like Wisconsin, it was decidedly yeah, off yeah. more. Nationally, but, it was not but, bad. But, of course, it's important to point out. I mean, when you're talking about state-level polls, right. the polls immediately become much more dis, uh, inaccurate. And you Why have is Much that? less of them. Well, part of it is, I mean, you, I've just, you know, as part of it, you just, you just have less of them. So okay. when you are going to the state level, I mean, the yeah. pollsters are usually just trying to do national-level polls. Um, and so the state levels just just happened very very rarely um so you get much less accurate uh, results Uh, and not only that but it's also you know as you move away from a national sample it becomes more and more difficult to actually get a representative sample of a state as well um you know it becomes more difficult to actually make sure you're reaching all the different groups in a state Mm -hmm. you actually have to have knowledge of the state so you can try to make sure that you get something representative in there and that just all Mm -hmm. of the all the difficulties that come along with polling become much more difficult as soon as you move to a state level yeah having said that i do think there's something a little weird going on that it's going to require more investigation because, I mean, for example, the Marquette University polls are usually pretty good in Wisconsin, and even they didn't call this, especially like, yeah, the, right. you know, Trump coming back and winning there. Ron Johnson won easily, which was not predicted. I mean, everybody yeah, pretty much thought Feingold was going to win and yeah. win pretty handily. Uh, so, you know, something really went went off in their their modeling, and so it'll be, it'll be interesting. I'm sure that eventually they'll, they'll figure out some flaw that um, <laughs> brought them down, but it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what that is. Well, there's a couple of flaws that have been floated in the media right. already, some hypotheses. I want to see what you guys think of these. Uh, one hypothesis for media, for error in journal. And by the way, I'm going to reject one out of hand. 
the pollsters I know, the people who work in that industry, who are especially the academics who work in that industry, don't have a, a partisan dog in this fight. Right. They are not interested in producing biased polls that create the impression that one candidate or the other is winning. Mm-hmm. For the most part, this is because late in the election, uh, the a poll doesn't actually push people to vote one way or the other. Right. If you see Hillary Clinton is winning, that doesn't make you more or less likely to vote for her, at least late in the election. It might help early in primaries mm-hmm. with donations and things, but right. true, uh, honest pollsters really are trying to get their numbers right. But they do differ on methodological questions. I just want to say something else about that, too. I mean, if you look and you see that your candidate is likely to win, that actually uh, is something that could suppress your turnout. Right. Because you mm-hmm. look and you say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, uh, my, my candidate is predicted to win, uh, therefore, I guess I was on the fence about showing up to to vote, I guess I don't have to. Right, right, right. Um, right. And so, on the other hand, if you look and you say, "Oh, my candidate is predicted to lose," um, I was on the fence about voting. I better make sure I get out there and actually do it. Right, right, right. So, so it's, it's, yeah, there might even be a slight tendency to want to undersell right. the, your preferred candidate. And some of these people yeah. are polling on behalf of a specific party. There are mm-hmm. polling mm-hmm. firms aligned with the Democrats, polling firms aligned with the Republicans, but they have an overwhelming professional interest to want to get these things right. Yeah, yeah. and they're generally the, the ones that are. I mean, you know, there's. They're obviously pollsters who aren't doing their job well, but for the ones you're going to see in mainstream outlets, the kinds that you know, 538 is going to use, um, Real Clear Politics is going to use, those are, I agree, they're pretty reliable. Right, yeah. And even the ones that you know sort of are run by Republicans or Democrats, again, those are, you know, you look at like Rasmussen Reports, which is associated with the Republicans, but it's very, they do a good job, right? You might yeah. disagree with some of their methodological choices at times, but they are pretty reliable. Just um, to give you an illustration of what we mean when we say methodological right. choices, yeah. uh, Rasmussen relies more than other polling firms on landlines. Right. Yeah. Um, they like to call people who have a home phone plugged into their home as opposed to a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence, one of the arguments about Rasmussen is that they tend to produce a poll which maybe gives a slight, maybe one or two point mm-hmm. advantage to Republicans because Republicans draw from a voting pool of people who tend to have landlines. Younger, more liberal people tend to be folks who don't have a landline and rely yeah. just on their cell phones. And to our earlier point, urbanites are also going to be probably Absolutely. less likely to have landlines than people in rural areas. Very good point. Yeah. So that's the kind of thing we mean when we say methodological decisions. There's nothing biased about choosing to just sample landlines, mm-hmm. but the effect of that produ- uh, might sample a specific population in a right. slightly different way. Mm-hmm. That really leads me to one of the hypotheses that's been floated for why we've undercounted Republican voters. Because we basically got Clinton's numbers right. She got about, about mm-hmm. exactly what we were thinking yep. she was going to get. But we'll be, we got less Trump voters than we thought we were going to get. Well, actually, I'm sorry. Let me say that wrong, we said that wrong way. More Trump voters showed yeah. up and voted than we expected. Yeah. One of those uh, arguments is that uh, pollsters undersampled rural areas. It's harder to get a representative sample mm-hmm. of a rural community. Yeah. Um, it's easier to sample a city. Mm-hmm. And maybe we just didn't count enough rural voters in our mm-hmm. in, in our polls. The other option mm-hmm. here is we t- we've talked in a previous podcast about the Bradley effect. Mm-hmm. This idea that you may not want to tell a post a pollster that you aren't going to vote for a candidate because they're a person of color because the pollster themselves sounds like mm-hmm. a person of color and you don't want to be offensive on the phone. Right. Maybe there's a reverse problem here. Maybe people were unwilling to say that they were going to vote for Donald Trump right. because they didn't want to exclaim to a pollster. That uh, that they were gonna, that, that they liked that candidate, particularly right. if that pollster was someone who perhaps had uh, a Latino accent or mm-hmm. perhaps had a uh, sounded like right. a person of color. And this is, uh, I think, this is really interesting. Yeah, we, we one of the things, one of the divides that broke out most clearly in this election was a divide between people who had a college degree or greater mm-hmm. or had a college degree mm-hmm. or lesser. And I wonder if there's a perception that someone calling you as a pollster. Represents an educated person, and there's a there's a mm. 
interaction effect here between people who are maybe slight, maybe one yeah. person out of 50 who doesn't right. want to say to that person uh, who they're voting for. Yeah. Yeah. It could be. I mean, I, I find that argument plausible. I think that um, the reverse Bradley effect is definitely a possibility. And to the undersampling issue, too, I think um, it, it does seem to me intuitively plausible that um, certain Trump voters, in particular sort of poorer working class whites, um, might right. be harder to get a hold of, right? That they might be yep. might be harder they're to get working. them to answer. They're working, for one thing. Uh, they're often working longer hours. And they may be less likely to talk to somebody who says, hey, I'm affiliated with such and such polling firm or such and such university. Because there's a distrust of, right. of because, like, media. Because you're a an establishment elite, right? Yeah. Who wants to talk to you on the phone? I don't right. know you. Um, so they may refuse to talk or maybe refuse to answer the phone. Um, so there's all kinds of possibilities. And, again, it doesn't take very many of those um, to your point, Chris, to sort of change the sample ever so slightly, and then all of a sudden you're underestimating Trump's vote total by 3%. Yeah. We shouldn't assume that just yeah. because of technology, polling is getting easier. Mm-mm. By changes in our culture, some polling is getting harder. Yeah, the, the sort of move away from everybody having a landline has made it a lot harder, yeah. actually. Yeah. Um, well, gentlemen, we've been talking exclusively about the presidential race here, but we, we'll be remiss if we didn't mention uh, the Congress. Yeah. Um, Democrats, in addition to assuming that they were that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidency, expected to retake the House. I'm sorry, yeah, no, 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 sorry, the Senate expected to retake yeah. the Senate, and thought they would close the gap in the House. Neither one of those things happened. No. Uh, uh, Demo- uh, Republicans held on to the Senate. Mm-hmm. Um, as of currently, they have a 51-48 lead with one seat outstanding. Yep, which should probably go for them as well. I think so. I think it'll end up being a 52-48 lead yeah. for the Republicans. And I mean, at that point, 50, 51 or 52 is really irrelevant. It's the fact that mm-hmm. they have the majority right. Right. Uh, and it's, it's not close to 60. Right. And 50, 50 goes to them, too, because, of course, Pence would break the tie. Absolutely. So. Yep. And the House, um, as I'm, there's still a few seats that are outstanding, so it's a little bit hard to tell. But it doesn't mm-hmm. look like Democrats are going to make any gains in the House. They have a, about a 48 but seat. Didn't they gain a couple or no? But anyway, it's it's very small. It's very close. It's uh, you yeah. know I think what I what I was saying to somebody before the election, I said, look, if they if they gain single digit seats, if the Republicans only lose single digit seats, that would be a great victory for them because they had a historically large majority. I thought it was like at two thirty eight one thirty one ninety three last digit, in two thirty nine it looks like now. Uh, there's a few outstanding, but anyway, it's very two two thirty nine one ninety three. Yeah, I think didn't they have two forty six before? So, so I think they've they've lost a handful. But you're right, Chris. I mean, like there's um, it's negligible. It's very yeah. negligible, especially considering yeah. how big their majority is, which again, right. largest majority they've had since the Great Depression. Um, you lose less than ten seats, you're just leaping for joy, and they lost probably more like five seats. Which, frankly, yep. given where they started, is a fantastic result for the Republicans. Um, and for the Senate, I mean, they were defending everywhere, right? They had, yeah. they had one chance to pick up a seat. They actually didn't do it. Um, that was Nevada, right? And everywhere else, they were defending all these vulnerable incumbents, and they only lost two of them. Uh, they barely lost to New Hampshire. They had about 700 votes. They lost Illinois, which they'd given up for lost yeah. a long time ago. But then they somehow won Wisconsin, which they'd also basically given up Ron Johnson for sort of the – you know, the political equivalent of the walking dead. Right. And he somehow <laughs> pulled this out. Um, so, you know, I mean, again, you told the Republican senators they were going to have 52 seats in the Senate and they would have just hugged you and, you know, taken this any day of the week. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a fantastic result for the Republicans and very disappointing for the Democrats in this election um, on the Congress side. I mean, it's interesting today. Like, I don't know if you guys saw this story, but Paul Ryan um, kind of gave some credit to Trump. Right? He said ah, Trump's coattails were good and they helped us in places you know like yeah. he thought and especially i think yeah. in the rust belt in like wisconsin that was probably how these two men paul ryan and donald trump <laughs> interact with each other at a personal oh, level is going fun. to determine a lot of the next yes, couple of is. years yeah. these two um begrudgingly 
occupy the oh. same party. Uh, Mitch McConnell also, we could say, begrudgingly occupies the same party yes. as Donald Trump. Um, we're already going to – I already want to push this off a little <laughs> bit because we're going to have a future podcast where we talk yeah. about uh, Trump's first 100 days. But he's already put out a, uh, a list of his objectives for his mm-hmm. first 100 days, and some of them have openly already rankled uh, leading Republicans in yes. Congress. Yes. So this might be a – Depending on how much of this he pushes, this could be Trump versus the establishment Republicans, rather mm-hmm. with the with the Democrats in Congress sort of stepping back and mm-hmm. hoping uh, for a mm-hmm. uh, for a mutual suicide here. What's, <laughs> what's going to be interesting, and this I just I, I know we're going to talk about this later, so I don't want to dwell on this, but just as sort of a teaser too, is when we say you know Trump against the establishment Republicans, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting to watch is to see how much it's also Trump versus the Tea Party, because Ooh, so yeah, much of point, Trump's yeah. agenda yeah. is actually counter to what the Tea. Oh, party stands for and so you know for a long time here we've had sort of establishment quote-unquote establishment republicans against the tea party right and now we actually have a challenger for what it means to be outside of the establishment from a totally different direction as a national pop nationalist populist as a nationalist populist and the policies that they want are very very different um and the kinds of you know for example i mean trump is very much opposed um right uh, to to well just yeah to to a number of things that they want like free trade. Uh, such as free trade or such as um, you know reducing reducing entitlements things like that yeah. I mean are all things that are yeah. they're just totally in opposite directions so yeah. it'll be interesting to see what it, this actually looks like yeah no the political theater is going to be f- fascinating absolutely. absolutely. Whether it's good for the country is another question. Well, but, um, you said something. We'll uh, you said something election night, which I, which just stuck with me, Andy. You said that uh, this is a chance for Republicans to govern. Right. Uh, it it's is. been a long time. How long? How long has been since we had all three branches of government unified, or not three, both houses of Congress and the presidency unified in the same party? Well, it, we did it during Obama's first term, right? Or just okay. during that first two years. Yeah. So, uh, the, so 08 to 010. Yeah, basically uh, the and first. Then, and then uh, during time. Bush's administration, um, from 03 to 07, you had the um, Republicans controlling the House and yeah. Senate. Uh, and briefly in 2001, but uh, but yeah, it hasn't been a lot recently. And you know, sort of the last what 10 years now, we've only had two years of unified party governance. Um, so that'll be it'll be interesting to see if they can do that. And I think mm-hmm. to Mitch's point, I mean, there's a lot of internal tensions here. Like Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, yep. you know, are you know they're paying their lip service to Donald Trump, but they are not Donald Trump Republicans. And yep. that's going to be really interesting to see where they can find common ground and what things they can get done. Because I expect there to be a lot of resistance. I don't think Congress is going to roll over and just you know pass the Trump agenda however he sends it up. They're going to push right. back. I think you're right. I think they have some common ground on, like, repealing Obamacare. Yeah, and on immigration issues, I think they're probably some common ground. Um, yeah, and on the, maybe, like, energy, like, sort of building the pipeline, that kind of thing. But yep. but on a lot of other issues, like, you know, there's going to be a lot of mm-hmm. disagreement, Correct. especially with, like, the Freedom Caucus, the sort of the Tea Partiers in the House. That's That'll be interesting. Um, <laughs> it, it certainly will. If... Because of the lead that Republicans have in the, in the House and because of the way the Senate sets up in 2018 to be very favorable towards Republican reelections, mm-hmm. if Trump and the con- congressional Republicans led by McConnell and Ryan are able to govern effectively for two years and if the economy continues to improve and some of those mm-hmm. um, other key factors continue to play in their favor, uh, we could see a, a, a midterm election where the, pre- where the president's party doesn't lose power. Mm-hmm. Uh, traditionally, we uh, right. midterm elections are places where the opposition party gains seats in yeah. both uh, both houses because the president's coattails aren't there right. in the system. Right. But the 2018 could really reinforce a Republican majority. We could. It's possible we could see uh, unified government under Republicans for the next four years. 
Yeah, very easily. I mean, it's it's actually very hard to see how the Democrats could possibly retake the Senate um, in 2018, just because they, so the, the 2018 House, map House is, is, if it's 40 seats, that's yeah. The House, I mean, like I think they probably gain seats in 2018, but again, they you know they'd have to gain what 30 seats, something on that, that, mm-hmm. those lines to take the majority, and that seems yeah. a lot less likely. Like I mean, you know, gaining 15 or 20 maybe, but. You know, 30 is uh, that's, that's a, a very heavy lift. Yeah. So, you know, that seems less likely unless things are really tanking. Um, and the Senate, even if things are tanking, it's it's difficult to see how the Democrats take it just because yeah. of the states that are up. Yeah. Um, it's it's you know, it's sort of it's the opposite of this map where this map was just a horrible map this year for Republicans and they somehow survived. Right. Um, for the Democrats next time, um, they have a similar map. Right. And even like, again, I said this is a great success for the Republicans. Let's keep in mind they lost two seats. Right. And yep. I'm calling that a right. great success yep. because yep. of the way they were defending. I think for the Democrats, if you lose two seats in 2018 you probably take that um, but yeah. that puts you at 54 46 right that doesn't get mm-hmm. you that takes you further from the majority but that's probably you know they'd be delighted to lose nothing yeah. um, I know we're looking a little bit far ahead here oh Mitch go ahead no I was just gonna say I mean one of the things I think especially when we're thinking about the house um, that come and sort of the fallout and what we can look for over the next few mm-hmm. years here is President Obama has actually basically taken the long view about what needs to happen for the Democratic Party. Right. I mean, he's essentially said that his uh, one of his main objectives as soon as he's out of office is to try to help uh, Democrats actually reshape state level um, <laughs> politics because he wants to work all the way back and try to get the states uh, start at least try to start reversing the gerrymandering that the Republicans have done at the state level. Can you see President Obama sitting in a, Mich- a, a Michigan <laughs> State uh, Zoning Commission meeting? <laughs> Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if he's going to work at that quite that level, yeah, but I could. A, but but I could see him that. essentially trying to um, use use his influence to rally Democrats to to think more in those terms. It's yeah. like him doing penance for having the sort of the state legislatures be eviscerated <laughs> under his watch, and because like right. the Democrats have lost uh, yeah. on the order of what nine hundred members of state legislature legislatures. Um, under the Obama presidency. So it's been a weird eight years for the Democrats. Yeah. On the one hand, they've had the presidency. They've been able to sort of, you know, lead at the top of the nation. But in, uh, underneath Obama, they've watched their party get hollowed out. And so, I mean, one of the, the fascinating things for them going forward is just, like, how do they rebuild? I mean, how do they find a way to get young stars in their party? They just, you know, they don't have a lot of really strong leaders behind um, their sort of front people. And their front people are all Quite old. old. I mean, yeah. you know, you got Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi heading the charge in Congress. They're both quite old. Pelosi's 76. Um, and all the kind of the top people you think of with the Democratic Party, Biden, Kerry, Clinton, um, Elizabeth Warren, are all, you know, 60s or 70s. Bernie yeah. Sanders, 75. I mean, so they're they're an old crew. Um, they need to rebuild. Is this the most Republican our government has been top to bottom in a very long time? Huh. Well, it depends on what we mean by Republican. <laughs> uh, affiliated with the Republican Party, how's that? Yes. In that sense, um, yeah. yes, it is. One of the things that's interesting is, in some ways, I think what we're seeing here is essentially the reverse of the New Deal. So essentially, oh, at, the new de- mm-hmm. at, the new de- at the time of the New Deal, the Democrats took over. They uh, controlled every layer yep. uh, top yep. down. And they basically, from that point forward, kind of had, you know, the Republicans were essentially hollowed out. They had no right. chance to take the right. House for decades. And uh, Democrats largely controlled many state governments. Yep. And now we see the reverse of that, where we have the Republicans who largely control um, the, you know, they, yeah. it's, it's hard to see the Democrats retaking the House in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, they mm-hmm. clearly have advantages with the, with the Senate. And, um, you know, we're seeing, we've basically seen the, the, uh, the Democrats hollowed out. Yeah. And where they do, I mean, it's, it's, so they, the Republicans control like two thirds of governorships and where the Democrats do control governorships, they're often people who can't really move on from that. I mean, like our governor, Mark Dayton is about to turn 70 in January, mm-hmm. I think. Um, you know, Jerry Brown out in California is 78, right? I mean, so, you know, they, they have some states that where they have governors, but these aren't people who are going to be like future national leaders. They're people who are going to retire. Um, and so it's, you know, 
Yeah, there's a lot of work to do for the Democratic lot, and, Party. And, and not a lot at the top in terms of, of talent either. Yeah. Um, because of the Republican primary this year, we saw lots of vi- of competitive right. Republican uh, nominees mm-hmm. for president right. or competitors for president. But in the on the Democratic side, very quickly, the relatively weak competition that Hillary Clinton faced outside of Bernie right. Sanders uh, melted away. Yeah. Uh, we don't yeah. really know who Martin O'Malley is. Right. We don't really know who Lincoln Chafee is. <laughs> um, and... Well, I'll leave that alone. Um, yeah, I almost but, forgot Lincoln Chafee ran, but yeah, yeah. that's right. Uh, and remember, Jim Webb. And Jim <laughs> Webb. Remember, uh, Chafee wanted uh, the electoral system, wanted to go to the metric system. That was one of his big campaign promises. Yeah. In, uh, Can't imagine why that didn't catch fire. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, could have been a more, this could have been a more boring election. Let's just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> well, yes. Um, but yeah, it, it's yeah. not clear outside of a couple people like Elizabeth Warren, perhaps, who's obviously going to be a front runner to challenge Donald Trump in 2020. <laughs> Don't say Kanye. Uh, Don't say Kanye. I'm not saying it. You said it. <laughs> oh, although, yeah. Kim Kardashian or Melania? I, um, <laughs> I actually think if Kanye decides to be serious and decides to run, I'll take, uh, if he said he's going to run, I want to take that seriously for That's a right. moment. Right. The problem with that could be a reverse Donald Trump. Um, in that Donald Trump was able to be successful in a very, very crowded primary because he was so famous and because he was so able to say controversial things that mm-hmm. kept the media attention mm-hmm. on him. He sucked all the air out of the room. Right. And people like Jeb Bush never got the kind of media time that they needed right. uh, to capture public attention. And um, yeah. Kanye could do that to a, um, a more traditional Democratic candidate if he decided to run. Mm. And... Um, that could make for a very interesting Democratic primary in 2020. Sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, gents, we've talked about the House, this, uh, the Senate. Uh, we've talked about um, the presidency quite a bit. We've talked about evangelical voters. And, uh, and what polling I wanna, error. And polling error. And I think what I'd like to do maybe now, if it's okay with you guys, is I'd like to hold off on our other conversations for our next podcast. On our next podcast, we'd like to talk a little bit about uh, national reactions to the Mm -hmm. election. I know that'll be next week, but we'd like to talk about, we think by that time we'll have a handle on some of the protests that are breaking out right Right. now, um, some of the racialized incidents that have happened across the United States Mm -hmm. in in the wake of the Trump victory. We'd like to process some of those things and talk about maybe... um, uh, Prospectively and hopefully how we can repair some of the rifts this election right. has created in our society and maybe yep. do some good. Mm-hmm. Following that, I think we'd like to look at what Trump's first 100 days will look like. And we'll have a little bit more knowledge in a couple of weeks as he begins to set up his transition team. Yeah, and we, at some point we should probably talk, too, about his cabinet choices. I think that's going to be yes. really interesting to keep an eye on um, how traditional he goes there, how unconventional he goes. So. And that will signal a lot. It will. Especially if we think that Trump might be the kind of person, because of his business background, because of his age, right. because of some of his tendencies, or to, to delegate a lot of the right. minutia of governance mm-hmm. to some of his appointees, who he appoints becomes incredibly important. Right. And I, I would kind of expect him to be that kind of manager. I mean, um, I, I think that he's he's likely not to want to sort of be involved too much with the nuts and bolts of every policy. More like, here's what I want you to, hap- to have happen. Now go do it. Right. Uh, that's right. kind of more the, the, what I would expect to be the Trump style. All right. Well, gentlemen, we made it. We survived the election. Now we'll see if we can survive the governance. All right. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Thank you again. We apologize for the technical difficulties. Uh, just as a brief reminder at the end of this podcast, please email us. We love getting email. You can email us at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. And uh, if you have a minute, uh, find us on iTunes and give us a rating. That helps others find us as well. So thank you for listening. On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, this is Chris Moore saying, Go Royals. Go Royals.